welcome home banners for soldiers are a common sight along highways in the New York City area and around the nation. But those signs are just the opening line in the very long story of a veteran's return. Good morning. I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. This morning, as part of WFUV's Strike Accord campaign on veterans' issues, we're taking a look at the many challenges returning troops face as they transition back to civilian life, as well as some of the programs out there to assist veterans. Glad you're with us for Cityscape. For a lot of us, Hollywood films are a great way to escape the realities of life. For two hours, we can forget our worries and focus on the action, humor, romance, and or fantasy presented on screen. Well, it's not exactly Netflix, but one New York-based group is working to make sure the nation's veterans have access to movie magic. Cityscape's Anne-Marie Fertoli reports. Each week, hundreds of DVDs from across the country are shipped to and from a small two-story building in the middle of Halstead Avenue in Harrison, New York. The modest brick-and-wood building, once a publishing company, serves as a headquarters for DVDs for Vets, a nonprofit organization that sends donated DVDs to veterans' facilities throughout the United States. The idea began with Dr. Richard Landis, a volunteer with the group Doctors Without Borders, and Frank Nicholson, a U.S. Air Force veteran sending care packages to soldiers overseas. Larry Bashkin, now the executive director of DVDs for Vets, was recruited to help build a website. He says the hope was to connect the dots between veterans in need and people who wanted to donate their DVDs. The site went live on Veterans Day 2006. What was interesting is that right away we got a call from the chairman of HBO, who said that he was a Vietnam vet, found out what we were doing, and offered to donate some DVDs from HBO. He asked if we could uh, receive the DVDs here to forward because he didn't really have the staff to send them out to local hospitals. Of course, we accepted and we received 1,000 DVDs. Bashkin says after the initial donation, contributions started pouring in from big Hollywood studios down to local high school key clubs. On average, the group receives about 500 DVDs a week. When we receive DVDs from the public, we always open up the envelopes and take the DVD out, make sure it's in good condition, make sure it's the DVD that's in the case, then pile them up. Volunteers then help sort the DVDs into boxes and ship them to veterans' hospitals and clinics. Each box has about 30 DVDs that we send out that are donated to us, and uh, we always send them by media mail, which is slow but cost-effective, and uh, takes about a week for these boxes to get to the hospitals. We send out, on average, 25 boxes, so a couple hundred DVDs are going out each week. Bashkin says the group cycles through its list of recipients, nearly 1,500 facilities, every few months. So right now we're starting out, this is going to the uh, Alaska State Veterans and Pioneer Home in Palmer, Alaska, also uh, to the Tuscaloosa VA Medical Center in Tuscaloosa, Alabama, And they will receive these DVDs uh, within two weeks and distribute them to their vets. After nearly three years, DVDs for Vets boasts more than a quarter million donations. And Bashkin says the goal still remains the same. Our mission is simply to get public awareness to know that the veterans are out there, where they are located uh, in the hospitals, and to have people donate their DVDs. One of the organization's grateful recipients is the VA Hudson Valley Healthcare System's Montrose Campus in Westchester. 
The center accepted a donation of more than 250 DVDs in February. Julia Anderson, chief of recreational therapy, says the therapeutic benefits of movies go far beyond their entertainment value. Movies also spark conversations and memories like no other stimulus can. If you see Gone with the Wind, you want to talk about it afterwards, or it can spark a a conversation of what were you doing when Gone with the Wind came out, or The Wizard of Oz. Anderson says the donation from DVDs for vets essentially created the hospital's movie library. We have those movies open for veterans that would like to watch a movie anytime they would like. We have a rolling cart with a DVD player that they can watch in their room, as well as organized movie nights on the weekends and some during the week. There are about 300 veterans at the facility, which includes long-term care centers and behavioral, mental health, and post-traumatic stress disorder units. My name is David Clayton. I'm originally from Atlanta, Georgia. I'm 28 years old, currently in the United States Marine Corps. Clayton says he keeps busy at the VA, from doing arts and crafts to enjoying movies with friends. I'm an antsy kind of person. I love to keep myself and my mind occupied and busy. Just to help pass time, of course, we watch movies. Good camaraderie out of that, even though when you're up here with a lot of the other vets from different eras and uh, groups, I would say, you know, you've got some Vietnam veterans and you've got some Korean veterans. You've still got World War II veterans in here. And just to be able to sit in a room with all different age groups and different upbringings and just to be able to have that camaraderie and laugh together and watch a movie together... That's just really nice. Clayton says it's usually the comedies that bring everyone together. Just the other day we watched Step Brothers. At, at some point all of us were in there laughing, having a good time, you know, and we all catch each other walking through the halls, saying, quoting lines to the movie to each other, like, don't touch my drum set and stuff like that. This is the one rule of the house. Don't ever, ever, ever touch my drum set. You understand? Don't go in there. And- don't touch it! All right. It's, uh, it's always a good time between everybody. Most of all, he's grateful for the reminder that there are people who care. You don't realize how much it benefits the group and people here to have the time go by. You know, It's a reality check for a lot of people here to be able to sit back and, and go back to feeling good and home and safe. Those are good qualities that it takes from good people to give. So thank you. DVDs for Vets is currently looking to open a second distribution center in California. The group does not accept monetary donations, but will accept new and used DVDs. For more information, visit the website at dvds4vets.org. For WFUV News, I'm Anne-Marie Fertoli. When we think of service dogs, we tend to think of guide dogs leading their blind owners through traffic. But one training program shows dogs can do a lot more than serve as eyes. Puppies Behind Bars uses prisoners to train dogs to serve as helpers and companions for veterans with post-traumatic stress disorder. Cityscape's Ellen Burke has more. Puppies Behind Bars has been placing dogs in New York-area prisons since 1997, where prisoners go through a careful screening process and then care for and train puppies starting when they're eight weeks old. Up until a few years ago, Puppies Behind Bars trained dogs for the visually impaired, but lately it's shifted its focus specifically to help Iraq and Afghanistan veterans, who deal more often with mental trauma than physical. Puppies Behind Bars programs director Kate Lorenz says post-traumatic stress disorder can make even the simplest tasks challenging for returning veterans. They're constantly scared of unanticipated social contact. You know, going into grocery stores becomes a fight-or-flight sort of instinct for, for many of these veterans who come back and they're, they're not sure what, what, what lurks around the aisle as they turn with their shopping cart. 
So beyond teaching puppies to stay and to hold in their barks, puppy raisers teach them commands to help veterans reacclimate to social situations. Former puppy raiser and inmate Geraldine Hardwick now works for Puppies Behind Bars. She explains how the puppies help former soldiers. To sort of feel secure and have their comfort, their space, they would tell the dog to block, which will create a, a barrier between you and the soldier where he can feel comfortable enough to engage in a conversation with uh, a civilian and still feel the dog is still there to help them. Besides helping veterans with PTSD get used to civilian life, Geraldine says the puppies are therapeutic for the prisoners. They're with the pups 24 hours a day, constantly teaching them commands and socializing them. Geraldine says the pups provide companionship and a sense of purpose in return. I had one dog after another after another. I raised a total of six dogs while I was um, at Bedford Hills Correctional Facility. So I, I enjoyed the program that much that I just wanted to be involved in I wanted to serve, you know, raising these dogs that go to people who were blind. It was my way of giving back, um, sort of saying, I'm sorry. In addition to their daily training in the prisons, Puppies Behind Bars has the puppies spend some weekends with volunteers in Manhattan. So the dogs will get used to traffic, public transportation, and city life in general. I met up with volunteers Nat Antman and Jerry Viscar as they greeted Jasmine, a golden retriever yellow lab mix, one Saturday. Good girl. Good girl. Jerry and Nat say they don't have the time to train service dogs full time, but the weekend commitment to puppies behind bars is just about right. We walked up 9th and 10th Avenues with Jasmine, who didn't bark at all and didn't seem phased by traffic. But Nat said he was trying to pick up cues about her behavior. The dogs all have very, I mean, they're all very different personalities and they're different things that they're like curious about or, or you know, that they're like a little bit more skittish about. You know, like some of them are like weird around little kids or other dogs or other small dogs. Like it's just random things that you have to kind of get a feel for them. But Jasmine didn't seem to have too many personality quirks. She only got distracted once when we passed an open-air market near a park on 9th Avenue. Nat and Jerry took her to cool off in the fountain at Columbus Circle and gave her a couple of treats. But Jerry said those weren't her favorite parts of the day. The best treat that they tell you for them is just brace them every time... You know, they listen or just, mm-hmm. just to say, you know, good girl or she's doing a great job. That's like the best treat that you can ever give them. Since starting its veterans program called the Dog Tags Initiative, Puppies Behind Bars has given 15 dogs to returning soldiers and plans to donate another eight this year. For Cityscape, I'm Ellen Burke. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Good morning once again. I'm George Boldarki. This morning, we're talking about issues affecting military veterans and their families. Joining us now in the studio are Dr. Marisa Coton. She's the co-director of the New York chapter of Strategic Outreach to Families of All Reservists. Good morning, Marisa. Good morning, George. Caroline Peacock is the director of the Home Again Veterans and Families Initiative at the Jewish Board of Family and Children's Services. Hi, Caroline. Good morning. Afghanistan veteran Edward Diaz now works as a peer advocate for the Home Again program. Edward, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Good morning, George. And on the phone with us is Robert Schwartz. Robert is the director of the Helmets to Hard Hats Wounded Warriors program. Robert, hello. Hey, good morning, George. I'd like to start off 
by getting a better sense of the role your organizations play in helping active military personnel, veterans, and their families. So why don't we start right over here with Caroline? I work for the Jewish Board of Family and Children's Services, and we're a very large mental health social service agency, and we provide services throughout the five boroughs in Westchester. And our new initiative, Home Again, the Veterans and Families Initiative, um, provides services to Iraq and Afghanistan veterans and their family members in a variety of different ways. Uh, we provide outpatient mental health services to veterans in the Bronx and Manhattan. We also provide consultation to clinicians who may be working with veterans and their family members. And we provide community outreach and education to different people in the city who may be serving veterans or who may want to learn a little bit more about this population. How new is that program? We've just been in operation for a couple years, and so far, so good. How about So Far New York, Marisa? So Far New York is um, a chapter of so the greater So Far USA organization that was started in Boston by Jane Darwin and Ken Reich. Patricia Rich and I are the co-directors of the New York chapter, and our mission overlaps somewhat with Caroline's and the uh, Jewish Board um, mission, which is we're a pro bono project, and we provide support, psychotherapy, psychoeducation, and prevention services to extended family members of the National Guard and Reserve specifically in order to build resilience in the families and to prevent uh, transmission of trauma in those families. Robert, tell us about Helmets to Heart Hats. So what we do is we help veterans that are transitioning out of the military or people that are serving in the National Guard or the Reserves get careers in the construction industry. And that's what we do. We help them get into the apprenticeships, and they can use their Montgomery GI Bill while they're going through the apprenticeship, and they can earn that great wage and take care of their family. Edward, you served in the military in Afghanistan. Yes, I did. How long have you been back? I've been back four years, since 2004, well, five, really, since 2004. And how long did you spend over there? I, I did over two deployments, um, one in 2002, 2003, and, and another one in 2003, 2004. What's it been like for you to be back? Coming back home in ETS and separating from the Army as honorable discharge, I had problems readjusting. One, I came out without a job, and my only experience was as an infantryman. So looking for a job with that type of experience, you basically don't find none. So for the first two years, I was basically unemployed. Other than that, adjusting to society, different environment from being in Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, you're in high tempo, and now you're home, and you're able to relax, but you can't. Robert, does Edward's scenario sound familiar? Uh, yes, it is. The, and, and that's a problem that a lot of veterans are facing. You know, now the good part about what our program does is, you know, like he had said, that you know, coming out as an infantryman, you might not have a skill set that really translates too well into a specific civilian career. Well, in the trades, in the apprenticeship, what will happen is, They'll train anybody. You know, I mean, for our program, as long as you're honorably discharged, you can use it, go into the apprenticeship, and they'll teach you what you need to know. Edward, how did you go about transitioning back to the labor market? Thankfully, there were certain organizations, such as Vietnam Veterans of America, the Vet Center, that assisted me looking for a job. And I decided to go back to school and continue my degree. And along with that, I started working for Vietnam Veterans to help veterans. And I'm now currently also employed with the Home Again program to assist veterans who need help. So give me an example of what you may do with a veteran who recently returned and can't get work. Uh, usually uh, I'll basically do provide outreach, mental health screening, and able to redirect them to organizations that might be able to help them find a job. 
I also work for the Vietnam Veterans of America Chapter 32, which I assist them to put in claims for them for the VA, uh, any health care that might require, and any counseling that might mm. also require. Caroline, you want to add on to that? Yeah. Um, well, we hired Edward and four other uh, veterans who are students within the City University of New York, and we're collaborating with the CUNY Office of Veterans Affairs. And basically, the idea behind this new program is to use uh, student veterans to reach out to other student veterans to help decrease the um, the stigma, the mental health stigma that many veterans are experiencing. Because, you know, what I think a lot of people are finding is that veterans find it hard to come into traditional mental health services because of that stigma. You know, they're trained to be able to withstand anything. Some people think that it's a sign of weakness to reach out for help. And so by using individuals like Edward to do the outreach and um, embedded with in that some mental health screening, we can help veterans access services when they really are in need of them. Marisa, how do you get past that? How do you make a veteran realize, you know what, it's okay to talk about that emotional distress? It's a very difficult problem because stigma in the military community as well as the general population is a tremendous problem. And in fact, the military, I think, is developing lots of programs and putting uh, resources behind the area of stigma and trying to get other veterans and family members specifically trained in increasing coping skills, identifying symptoms within family members, and really um, being the interface between the military community and the mental health community to get the help that's really needed. Edward, did you suffer any psychological effects of being in Afghanistan? Well, coming back, I kind of uh, ignored my, my, my situation. Basically, I felt that I had no problems, but other family members and friends realized the difference. I, I wasn't communicating. I was serious, never smiled. I had trouble sleeping and also, again, trouble looking for a job. So along with all those situations, I, I had developed a depression, temporary depression, and thankfully because of the vet center and other friends, I was able to readjust and reintegrate. And you didn't see that in yourself, though. No, uh, we've, uh, we got trained to focus on the mission, and usually little things, little details like that we, we ignore. We, we tend to, how should I say it, um, ignore, just continue with your mission, basically. And just continue what you have to do. And the, the the problems that we have, mental problems, is it's in imagination. And just continue. Marisa, is it hard to get a returning vet to realize that they're suffering psychologically? You know, I think that this is something that is actually changing with this group of veterans by far by comparison with others in the past, for example. But often it is because what's adaptive behaviors in active theater is not very adaptive in, you know, civilian life. So that makes it very difficult to recognize these problems within, the, you know, the military community. When we come back, we're very, how should I say, aggressive uh, we expect some, something in terms of to be accomplished at a certain time. And we usually, in the military, that works. When we give an order, we expect it to be done at a certain time, and there's no exceptions. And when we come back to the civilian world, this is what we expect. And when it doesn't work out, we stand out. And that's the problem that we have, readjusting those skills that we have from the military to civilian life. Caroline, anything you want to add to that? I saw you there <laughs> nodding your head. You know, one of the things that we often hear about from veterans is driving habits once they've returned to the states because for individuals who had 
a role in in Iraq or Afghanistan where they were driving, they had to drive in a very particular way that was very aggressive because of dangers on the road. And so when they get back into the States and say they're driving in the Bronx or Manhattan or wherever, if they follow the same rules of driving that they had while they were in Iraq or Afghanistan, you know, they're definitely going to get pulled over. Hmm. Edward, did that come into play for you? Yes. uh, Even though most of the time we were in the mountains and the very few roads in Afghanistan, when we did when we did drive, we were very aggressive, especially going to Kabul. We cut off other vehicles. We made sure that other vehicles were 50 or 200 meters away from our location because we were afraid of either IEDs or improvised bombs, car bombs. So when we come back and certain things remind us of that situation, we tend to drive. Well, at least I tended to drive a little bit more aggressive, either cut vehicles off and not knowing that I'm, I'm doing that on purpose. That's really something that I didn't even take into account, right, Marissa? Yeah, yeah it's really true. Um, this idea, I mean, Edward even used the word either. There's this idea in when you're in theater of thinking either I'm safe or I'm in danger and, and you know, kill somebody. And that sort of either or thinking doesn't really translate to civilian life. It's not like, you know, either I sleep or I don't, or either I drive like I need to be safe or I don't, or if someone insults me, I don't have to get up in their face and, like, take action. It's like learning to moderate those sorts of ways of interacting. Robert, I would think then the first step is to make sure that all is okay as far as the mental health of a veteran, even before you start to help them to find work. Oh, definitely. I would I would definitely agree with that. And part of but part of the healing process, and Edward might agree with me on this one, is that, you know, that employment side, because, you know, I've dealt with a lot of veterans, and what happens is it doesn't help when they're out there trying to find a job, and they're not, you know, it just puts them deeper into a depressed state, you know, so once they get squared away and they're seeing a provider, seeing someone that can help them with their mental health, you know, the employment is just another piece of that puzzle on the road to uh, success. I agree. I think the, the the main effect that I had was unable to find a job. And you come out of the military provided with all the securities, health care, a paycheck, and, and a, a roof over your head. And you come out, and next thing you know, you don't have an apartment, and you have to sleep over a fence house for two years, and you can't even find a job. So that also contributes to your depression along with the problem readjusting and realizing that you're not in combat anymore. How did your family deal with all of this? Oh, well, my family, when I came back to New York, my family finished moving. So basically, I had friends that, that I stayed with to readjust. My family wasn't around. So that's the, the main problem that I also had. Though I would think, Marisa, that families do suffer the psychological effects as well, and that cannot be ignored. No, absolutely not, George. I mean, one of the things that's so striking is that the National Guard and Reserves community on Long Island, for example, is the second largest in this country, second to San Diego. And some of these military are even even if they're unemployed when they return or if they're active, their pay is sometimes significantly less than their civilian jobs. So there's financial pressures on the family while they're deployed. And then, you know, this is an accumulative problem. So the families are suffering financially, which leads to, of course, other stresses psychologically. And that's why we see other problems like child abuse or neglect or substance abuse, etc. Are the experiences of Reserve and National Guard soldiers different than those of regular military troops? Yes. Uh, active duty, we already have our own, our own infrastructure. And National Guard and Reservists, they go from civilian life and next thing you know, 
than military duty, and their families weren't prepared for this, especially for extended overseas duty. So it contributes a lot to their mental health. Caroline? Also, uh, when reservists come back, a lot of times they're coming back into a community and they're not surrounded by other military folks. So they may feel very alone in their experiences. And their family members may feel alone, too, because they're not a part of a military base. And so they don't necessarily have anyone to talk to who can really understand what they've been going through. So it can be uh, reservists can really feel very alone in, in these struggles. And with this particular population, the benefits for family members and extended family members in the National Guard and Reserve um, have been lacking from the beginning. And the military has definitely done a lot to inc- improve this situation. And, and the National Guard in particular is extraordinarily organized. And there's these families, family readiness groups and the Yellow Ribbon Program, which have developed significantly over the last year, in fact, that include family members, particularly during the cycle of impl- deployment to help su- lend support of any kind. We often hear that when veterans return, they're never the same. Edward, would you say that's a true statement? I think that you have your experience a certain event, certain events that is not normal, and you will always have that with you. So I think I think I agree with that statement. You're always going to be different. You're not going to be probably smiling every time like you used to, or because you always have these events in your head. So you personally change. You either become more responsible, uh, learn to appreciate life more depending on the situation. Marisa, would you agree with that? Yes, and we, from the family's perspective, when a soldier is deployed, we so far likes to view the fa- you know, the family as serving as well. The whole family serves. And when the soldier returns, the whole family is impacted by this. And so far as focused on what Caroline was talking about earlier about the developmental differences of the children and their needs when when they're questioning where, what about their parent who's deployed and what about what's happening with that parent. And this guide specifically offers information and lends help to primary care providers, teachers, mental health providers, and parents themselves to learn new ways to talk to their children at different developmental ages to help them understand what's What's happening? Robert, with helmets to hard hats, is it mostly about the veteran or do you get involved with the families? Uh, we actually were strictly for the veteran. Do you ever have family members come to you and say, I need help getting my loved one a job? That happens a lot. Um, a lot of the uh, spouses that are home, you know, what they do is they know that once their uh, husband or wife gets back from being in country, that they're going to need an employment opportunity. So we do actually get a lot of phone calls from husbands and wives that are pre planning you know, for their spouse that's coming back. I know that the Army is going to be requiring this emotional resiliency training to Mm -hmm. try to help military personnel deal with trauma even before they're deployed. Can that be effective, Marissa? Yes, most definitely, George. I think that the idea of increasing coping skills and learning what to expect can go a long ways to coping with trauma because, you know, that could be, that's inevitable and and maybe 20% of the cases of the soldiers who are actively deployed who are experiencing trauma. So it can go a lot of ways to, you know, prevent transmission of the trauma. Also, just to learn to cope with the cycle of deployment, which a lot of these reserve and National Guard soldiers have experienced repeatedly, and uh, the separations have such a deleterious effect on the family relationship. So yes, in fact, resiliency is something that the military has, you know, really put a lot of resources behind in terms of research, and what psychologists um, and mental health providers can really help the families um, to build. Edward, going into this, did you realize what you were, number one, exposing yourself to and how you may feel 
when you returned, or did you not see any of that? Oh, well, I, the job that I did as infantryman, I kind of expected eventually one day or the other I might go to combat. I just didn't think after when I came back what was going to happen. Like like somebody mentioned, everybody has a plan, plan A. And when I came back in the military, I had a plan. I was going to become a police officer. I already took the exam, and I passed it, right? But then when I finally got diagnosed that I was in combat and so forth, that was a problem. So when that plan went wrong, then plan B is the, is the biggest problem, and that's where I needed help. Caroline, what's the most common story that you hear on an everyday basis? The main thing we hear is that families are struggling just to readjust. Some of the basic challenges of, of getting along, maybe um, individuals having experiencing more anger, just common day-to-day interactions can be really difficult between family members. So that's something that we, we see really often. But one point that I want to make, um, you mentioned earlier the topic of resilience, and I think that's really important to talk about because a lot of times, you know, there can be a stigma, not just the mental health stigma that veterans may be experiencing, but there can be a stigma against veterans about maybe not wanting to employ them because of what kind of issues they may be bringing back. But many veterans have very many strengths, and they're resilient, and they've been through a lot, and they've received very unique training. And some of those skills can be really applicable in the workplace back here. So we try to build on veterans' strengths so that um, we use all the things that they've learned to help them get by in day-to-day life. And I think it's really important for the community at large to recognize the many strengths that veterans can bring to our community. Edward, how does that make you feel knowing that there might be people out there who see you as a veteran and may not want to hire you simply because of it? They're afraid of mental health problems or other issues. I think that was the main reason why at the beginning I neglected to seek treatment or help. Uh, just that fear that either in the military promotions might not be available or when you get out certain jobs, especially my experience with the police department. And so we tend to just keep it quiet and just ignore that we have an issue or problem even more. Marisa, any final notes? Army generals have come forth and are talking about their own experiences with PTSD and, and suicide in their friends and buddies. And Department of Defense launched a $2.7 million service-wide anti-stigma campaign where service members can tell their stories of seeking help. So we're very optimistic. Robert, you get the last word. Oh, okay. I would just like to uh, thank Edward for his service and other veterans for their service to this country and that you know, there's a home for them in the trades if they want to go into construction. Robert Schwartz is the director of the Helmets to Hard Hats Wounded Warriors program. Robert, thanks so much. Thank you. We want to thank Afghanistan veteran Edward Diaz, who now is a peer advocate for the Home Again program. Edward, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Caroline Peacock is the director of the Home Again Veterans and Families Initiative at the Jewish Board of Family and Children's Services. Caroline, thank you. Thank you. And last but certainly not least, Dr. Marisa Coton. She's the co-director of the New York chapter of Strategic Outreach to Families of All Reservists. Thank you, Marisa. Thank you. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. For more information about the veterans' organizations featured on this week's show and other groups, visit the Strike Accord webpage at WFUV.org. I'm George Boldarki. Have a great weekend.